Hello and welcome to Spotlight. I'm Isabel Markham, an editor with Private Equity International. Last month, I sat down, virtually of course, with Mario Giannini, Chief Executive Officer at Hamilton Lane, to talk all things COVID-19 and private markets. But before we got into that, I of course had to ask how he'd set himself up for working from home. I'm in the, the basement of my home. I really haven't set up hardly anything. You can see everyone tells me I need really fancy backgrounds and bookcases and all this stuff. And my feeling is it doesn't really matter. So I'm here usually with my dogs. Hopefully they don't bark. And that's really it. I have, you know, the laptop and an iPad and it's all work amazingly. So you're the head of a very large organization. I think, is it about 68 billion in AUM um, from the last count? Yeah. Um, well, you've got around, is it 400 employees across the globe? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, a little over 400 at this point. Yeah. Okay, and you're also listed. So that's a lot going on. How has the pivot to remote working been? Interestingly, you probably heard this from a lot of people. Uh, what you realize is you can do it. You can pivot completely into a remote environment. I think the increasing question is the fact that you can doesn't mean you should in all cases. And so I think that's now the part that we're all just, not Hamilton Lane, but everybody is struggling with in terms of how do you maintain connections? I heard a, a great analogy by a general partner uh, out of London who said to me, you know, Mario, we all have relationship reservoirs and this pandemic is draining them. Zoom and Teams and all these things don't increase it. They don't cause it to drain as quickly, but they don't increase it. And so we have to find ways to increase our relationship reservoir. And I think that's true within the company. I think that's true with clients, with general partners, with everyone, the whole ecosystem. So it has worked remarkably well um, in a way that, again, I don't think we ever imagined it would be as effective. But now I think we have to evolve into, okay, now how do we create connections in a way that we're just not used to doing? You know, the human race evolved over thousands of years kind of socially to see each other. And you can't just take three months and go, ah, we're going to change all that. So I think we're all figuring that out. How have you been keeping a sense of team and community? We have an HL entertainment channel. And so we have a, a house band and you know, we've virtually done some songs and put them on there and people love that. So you stay connected. But the other way is people have done these Zoom things where you have you know, sort of a virtual happy hour or a virtual dinner, or virtual lunch. They've been effective, but you know, they're not the same. Tell me more about the house band. Actually, I think we have a little clip here we can play. Very clever name, the Hamiltones. Every year we do a charity concert. And so six or 700 people, and we pick a charity or two that we donate the proceeds. And we were going to do a concert, would have been in May, I guess. And that obviously didn't happen. So what we've done is uh, we each record a part. We pick a song. And of course, obviously, the singers pick the song because they're all prima donnas. I play guitar, so we instrumentalists can only do what the singers tell us to do. And so we do a song and we, we have a drummer who is phenomenal and he puts it all together and people enjoy that. And it's fun. So it actually leads us very nicely into talking about your client notes because you on occasion kick those off with... Uh, yeah. musical references, which I enjoy a lot. especially enjoyed the reference to the Traveling Wilburys, which is a band people do not talk about enough, yeah. in my opinion. It is a remarkable, I mean, just the people in that band 
were all great and they were all great on their own. And then they formed this band that is unbelievable together. Yeah. Yeah. Very underrated. So you've been issuing these pretty much every week since COVID-19 kind of really kicked off in the U S back in March. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it seems that way. I just want to talk the listeners through a little bit about what these weekly market updates look like. So they can run to sort of 20 plus pages sometimes each is starting out with a pretty detailed look at some 20 odd countries COVID-19 strategies, how effective it is, what progress they've been making. You're then diving into pretty detailed discussion of each market's lockdown and reopening situation. You're going through some academic studies, mortality rate data, transmission risks, vaccine development. And this is all before you've got to the financial markets. So why do you feel it's important to be writing these and why do you choose to cover such a breadth of information? Okay, I question that sometimes as I sit there and write them. They started really as something internal only. It started, interestingly, originally, the, I think the first one or two were only about private markets um, and what I thought was going to happen in terms of how more about how people would react and what to look for. And it was really done internally to say, okay, there's been a shock to the system. This was in early March, I guess. Here's what we need to watch for. Two things then happened. One was what I realized is, so in 2008, the epicenter of the problem was the financial system. So as you were talking about markets, you were talking about the problem that either was going to get resolved or wasn't going to get resolved and how it was going to get resolved. What you realize in this is it, there's a pandemic going on, a, a health issue and a government response to that that is driving the financial markets. We were sort of the, the corollary damage to what was going on everywhere else. So I figured it's very hard to talk about the markets without at least having some understanding of what's going on with the, with the pandemic, with the virus. So that's how that started. Then the other thing that happened at the same time is as I was talking to people internally in particular, they were telling me things that they were hearing on the news or hearing their friends. And I thought, holy shit, like this isn't even close to right. Like this isn't, this is totally inaccurate. And so I thought, no, I need to at least not tell people what's going on because I don't really know, but at least give people a framework for here's what to think about. Here's what to look for. And so that's where it, it all started. And then a couple of people internally, it never occurred to me that it would go outside the firm. A couple of people internally said, hey, we ought to share this with you know, some channel partners, some, some clients. This is, this is helpful, which never really even occurred to me as something that I was going to do. It was just, again, going to be internal. That was the genesis of it was, let's just have a framework for thinking about what's going on so we can help our clients and we can make better investment decisions. I had no clue in March that we were going to be here in September, not <laughs> that much further along. So what's the feedback been? I, I would say I'll start with universally positive in terms of, wow, we're not really seeing this anywhere else. And I think, again, you're a writer, you know this. The, the other positive feedback is at least parts of this are interesting. Like everything I get from these other places is just pablum. And, and you know it. I mean, people that write stuff like this, like what I'm supposed to write is the markets are really volatile and interesting opportunities may arise. What the hell does that mean? Like you're like the, the Oracle of Delphi. You kind of go, oh, he must mean something. It's going up or down. And then, it, you know, I'm right, whichever way it goes. So I think people like that it is somewhat funny sometimes. It is at least creative. 
and it's enjoyable to get through. Like you don't finish it going, my God, if I get another one of these, I'm going to burn it. Like that will be kindling for my future. So I've had a number of people say, which is, which is gratifying in a way that they use it for their, their Monday morning investment committee. So they all have to read it. <laughs> they must hate me in that firm, these firms. And then they use it as kind of, okay, this is what at least one person thinks is going on in the markets. How do we think about that? This is, and so I think that's, to me, that's what it's all about. It's just get people to react. I don't care if people love it or hate it, honestly. Just react. Like, it, just say something and think for yourself on some of this stuff because in the end, that's how you're going to make good decisions and that's how, frankly, we're going to come out of this whole thing is people got to think on their own. So if I'm a limited partner, a Hamilton Lane client, how does this fit into all the other information and reporting that you're sending them? Well, that's a good question because I think we think about, you know, overloading the client with, with too much because it's not just us that they're getting stuff from. So we send a lot of information around what do we think is going on with cash flows in your portfolio? What do we think is going on with valuations? And we back that up with a ton of data. And so I think people can look at that and go, this is above or below market norms. This is above or below what I should be expecting. They can make more, I'll call it quantitative judgments about what's happening. Why is it happening? I think this one really fits in in the, okay, how should I think about the world? How should I think about things? How should I be skeptical or how should I be positive? I would say this is the 30,000 foot or 20,000 foot level rather than the more granular. So let's talk a bit about what's going on in the world of private markets. So how long have you been working in private markets now? Well, I guess since I went to Hamilton Lane and joined the firm, it had just started. So that was 93, 92. You've seen a cycle or two. I mean, you mentioned this a bit earlier, uh, the sort of health aspect of the pandemic, obviously. Uh, but how is this crisis kind of behaving differently to previous crises? If we maybe take the GFC and the dot com, yeah. the two mega ones. Yeah, well, again, you know, and it's how the update started. But for me and for everybody, we all reacted as if it was like, oh, wait. And I think that is what, it, in hindsight, it turned out to be a little bit of a head fake because everybody looked at it and went, okay, I know what's going to happen. We're all going to rush into distressed debt. And we're going to make a lot of money in distressed debt. And then credit's going to be the place to be. And then equity six or nine months later. And what is completely different is government and central bank reaction. I mean, if you look at what the central banks and, and government fiscal stimulus programs did, they literally did in one month, two months, whatever long it took them, what, five or 10 times what they did in two years after 08. And I think what that did is it, it did a couple of things from the private markets perspective. One, it made the distressed default credit side a very, very different animal from what we saw in 2000 or 2008. It basically took that entire opportunity away in, in very large part. And it made the equity opportunity, you know, being able to buy companies or sell companies come back much faster. But what it also did completely different from prior downturns is in prior downturns, you were kind of punished or rewarded for doing things smart financially, you know, leverage, using leverage well, having great management teams. And as an investor, you could kind of pick and choose and figure out what you wanted to do. That didn't happen this time. This time it was a pure chance situation. If you were in industries like Zoom, you were doing great. If you're in industries like aviation or hospitality, restaurants, you were screwed. And you now have a completely, I think, bifurcated world out there. There's a class of companies that are doing really well and a class of companies that are really struggling. And as an investor, 
I think you've got to make a choice. Am I going to be investing with companies that are still at very high multiples, basically pre-pandemic, and go with growth, or am I going to go with value? We've not seen this two paths that are almost completely different. Um, that was not the case at all. And, and the sequencing, credit to equity, now it is equity. And perhaps if the markets struggle over the next year, economy struggle, credit comes in a much more elongated cycle. And how have you seen behaviors change among the LP community? Interestingly, the LP community is the community, I think, that learned the most from 0809. In 0809, you were getting calls, we were getting calls, get me out of private equity, get me out of, get me out of illiquids. I need liquidity today. I need it now. Even at the height of the downturn in Europe and the US, so March, that was not happening. People were not panicking. People were not, they were worried. Sure, the markets were down 30%, but there was a notion of, oh, I know how this works. Like the markets go down, illiquids do somewhat better. So I'm not gonna panic. I may not invest more, but I'm not going to run for the exits. So I think that was one of the big behavioral changes. The discussions were, where should I be leaning with the commitment amounts I have to put out rather than I'm not doing anything. So when clients are calling you for those, where should we be leaning conversations? How are you advising them? You know, so for example, if people had a fair amount of energy exposure, their portfolios are really damaged. But if they had a fair amount of technology or healthcare exposure, their portfolios are doing reasonably well. So I think the first step is what do you have? And then you begin the conversation around how much risk do you want to take around this? Where do you want to lean? How do you want to do that? Because I don't think geographically there's any place that you say is so much better than one place over another. And so it's more a question of, are you going to lean a little more equity? Are you going to lean a little more debt? Because you think that in fact, over the next year, things will still continue to struggle. I think those are the conversations you have around portfolios today. Obviously people are worried about pandemic and, and all its impacts, but an even probably equal worry is the geopolitical situation and, and how that impacts where people invest. So if the U.S. and China continue to be at odds, what does that mean for a U.S. or European investor in, in China? What does it mean for a Chinese investor in, in the U.S.? I think those issues are still very much front and center in people's minds. So those geopolitical issues, are they more at the stage of just kind of monitoring and seeing where it goes or are people actually making active decisions? based on those concerns? They're not making active decisions most today. They're not saying I refuse to invest in geography X or Y. And I think many people right or wrong believe that the election in the US will have a bearing on that so that if Trump wins, it will increase tensions with China. And if Biden wins, it will decrease. Um, whether that's true or not, I, I, I don't know. Um, but I think there is a view of that. So I think you will increasingly, and now that we're in September, I think you'll increasingly see people reluctant to make any big bets. They'll continue to invest as they've done, but they're not going to make big bets on a geographic basis until they see the election results. I just want to circle back to what you were saying about the public markets kind of coming back. I think between the Q1 and the Q2 valuations, most of it was sort of made back, as it were. How, what do you think about that? Do you think the public markets are overly optimistic at the moment? Do you think it's kind of right that they've rallied the way they have? Again, I'm not a public market guy, but I think they're right. I think the markets have it right. I think what people underestimate is the power or the value of interest rates as low as they are for as long as they're going to be. So if, if markets are really 
a function of a discounted cash flow mechanism out into the future, your discount rate matters enormously. And if it's essentially close to zero, a, a dollar today, a dollar in three years is worth almost as much as a dollar today. And I think that's what the market is saying is multiples should be higher because earnings streams are more valuable than they were in February or in January, both because of interest rates being lower, but because we think interest rates are going to stay lower for far longer. So I think that the markets are, have they gone too far? Maybe, but I think they're right that the March numbers were just too low given the response by governments. Let's talk through the ebb and flow of private equity deals this year. How has that been? Did it quieten down as much as the narrative would suggest? Or should we be expecting a booming Q4 to make up for it? Yeah, I think that it, it did slow down substantially, certainly in March, April, maybe a little bit of May. It slowed down a lot, both because you couldn't value equity. People didn't know, you know what the valuation should be. And also because the debt markets were not willing to finance a lot of things. So I think there was just a lot of stuff going on. I think the activity has gotten back much faster than people expected, part of the public markets, in part because the, the Fed in the US and ECB also, they just flooded the system with liquidity. So the debt markets are functioning reasonably well. And I think you will see, let's assume the market, public markets stay fairly stable. I don't even think they have to go up to stable. I think you'll see much more activity than anyone expects. I think driven by a feeling that there's a lot of capital out there and you got to put it to work, uh, that the markets are not going to go crazy on you. The election is going to be a big driver in the U.S. because I think a lot of general partners are very worried about tax rates going up. And so they want to sell before the tax rates go up. And so I think that's going to drive a fair amount of activity in, in the markets. If I would say there's one thing people will be most surprised about, it is the amount of money that is coming back into their portfolios for limited partners. I, I think everyone expects very little exit activity. And I, I know that could be a surprise on the upside. So on Hamilton Lane's latest earnings call, we heard that separately managed accounts and secondaries particularly are doing very well for the firm right now. Why do you think those are two particular growth areas? Separately managed accounts, you can tailor your portfolio rather than the more traditional fund of funds that has kind of everyone gets the same portfolio. So I think that's one trend that is, I think, an inevitable trend in, in any market, but at this point in private markets. And then secondaries is just a place where you know, you were talking about exit opportunities and you've seen it. There are more GP led secondaries going on. I think it is a way for GPs to sell portfolio companies, a way for investors to get a particular portfolio company to, again, tailor their portfolios around certain risk return profiles. I think the liquidity around secondaries is becoming more normal where people buy and sell them, not because they're distressed or because they hate a manager, but because they're saying, I I've got too much of this, so I'm going to get rid of some of it. I just think it's becoming a market that people are far more accustomed to dealing with. So I've said for a few years, and I I continue to say, I think the secondary market is where you're going to see big changes in private equity. Again, it's going to become almost like a co-investment market with GP-led secondaries. And then the LP-led deals will continue where you're selling your normal LP interests. Um, Do you have any concern around single-asset deals that were done at the height of valuations before this all kicked off, uh, now you know you're left with one what should have necessarily been a trophy asset, but maybe as you said, it could be in one of those sectors where it isn't anymore. Do you think we're going to see yeah. some problems there? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And again, it, it'll be a random thing. You could have bought a great asset. We always talk about airports. Remember, everyone wanted an airport as an infrastructure deal. How could you lose? You guaranteed six percent, you know, whatever you were looking for. 
and now you're stuck with an asset that is has no revenue and you can't close because governments won't let you close airports. So yeah, I think there are some assets that are just, you know, you're going to have to figure out whether they survive. I think most of them will survive, but you're going to be going through a fairly lengthy period of working this asset through. And then your ultimate return, my guess is, you know, it'll be like the RJR deal where you didn't lose money, but you look at it and went, geez, I really want to wait 15 years to make 3% or whatever they made. So I think there'll be some of those assets like that. But in fairness, I mean, I'll defend some of the private equity people. It wasn't because they made a bad deal. It's just they you just got caught in the wrong industry. Just to change tack slightly, uh, another sort of big global issue that's going on right now alongside COVID, especially in the US, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, there's ongoing discussions about racial and gender equality in the wider society. This has come to the fore in private equity. We've seen uh, some of the industry giants making statements, pledging to address this, promote inclusion and foster conversations. Do you feel Hamilton Lane is in a position to be able to drive this forward at some of the fund managers you're working with? I think we can we can be part of and have been. I mean, we have we have had diversity as part of our questionnaire. We have had diversity targets that they tell us they're meeting and we, we examine them every year. So I think that we are part of it, but I think it needs to be a broader industry focus. And and we'll see if that happens. I know LPs talk a lot, but whether they do what they say, they talk the talk. I'm not sure they walk the walk as much. And I've said this to them. I've said this in, in conferences. Um, you talk a big game, but many of you don't do it. So I think it needs to be more than just Hamilton Lane or more than just you know pick your firm. It needs to be something that's just part of what we do as a normal thing. Just like we look at a track record and make cuts on track record, we have to be looking at diversity and say, look, you, you're not even you're not even trying. So we have other options, we have other opportunities we can, we can select and that's what we're going to do. I wanted to get your thoughts on something that came up uh, last week for us. Uh, Private Equity International hosted its annual Investor Relations Marketing and Communications Forum, virtually of course, this year. And on one of the panels, a senior IR exec said they were worried about, and I'm going to quote here, the removal of private equity from a hand-selling, character-driven relationship business to a what-are-your-returns business. And they then went on to say they were concerned about investors kind of trading in and out of funds and not providing that long-term relationship that everyone in private equity is looking for. So this struck us as interesting for a couple of reasons. Obviously, private equity is kind of known for being a people business, a relationship-driven business. Uh, But I think the way it was phrased kind of versus the what-are-your-returns, it just kind of made us think whether this is the best for investors and is it likely to produce better returns if it's sort of something that's relationship based rather than something that's just on paper the data i I read that and thought it was one of the more interesting things i've read in this whole pandemic so kudos uh, for that conference and that that quote i think that there's a good and a bad part of it we've always talked about and if you've seen some of our earlier stuff that one of the amazing things about this asset class is how little return matters relative to others and that that's a bad thing, that people are making decisions based on I like or don't like Mario. Um, and, and that's just not good, not sustainable. So there's an element of this that is very good, that it gets people less focused on relationships and more focused on returns as a, as a driver of decisions. The bad part is it can't all be about a quantitative number. 
because of what you said. You are entering a relationship, whether you like it or not, for some period of time. And it is not like public stocks where you can just jump in and out. There is a friction cost that is significant, even with a secondary market that's more robust. And it's also, particularly on the primary side, you're making a blind pool decision about a manager's ability to react. And just because he or she has done it well in the last 10 years doesn't mean they're going to do it well in the next 10. And some of that is qualitative. I tell people at the firm all the time, the only use you have of having me around is that I've seen cycles. I can't run Excel spreadsheets. I can't do any of the quantitative stuff that people at Hamilton can do, but I'm old. And I've seen some stuff and that has some value. I don't know whether it has 20% value, 80%, but it has some value. That's the part that I think we can't lose as a result of the pandemic. If, if we come out of this and people go, you know, instead of 10%, returns are now going to be 40%, whatever your number is, that's a good thing. If it becomes 100%, I think we will not be in a place where better investment returns are generated because it's all going to look backwards. Could this sort of reliance on the personal connection be exacerbating the lack of diversity among fund managers or willingness to invest in uh, emerging managers, uh, new programs? Absolutely. I guess the fortunate thing of all of this inequality focus happening in a pandemic is people can focus on it. You know, there's no excuse that, oh, I got to get on an airplane. I'm not going to pay attention to this. The bad news is what you just cited. It is really challenging to understand different perspectives, to make new connections with managers, with investments in a remote environment, really challenging. And so I think what I know for us, what we are doing is doing the best we can in a remote environment, but then setting, setting the stage for, okay, then as we develop more, so are we going to have conferences around them or just different things you can do to heighten the deal flow, to heighten the connections, to heighten the relationships. Uh, but I think it's really hard to do that in Zoom. So you mentioned earlier, and it's something that we're all thinking about just um, a couple of months to go now to the US election. So obviously politics are front of mind, especially in the US right now. Um, but private equity has been in the political spotlight quite a lot over the last couple of years for one reason or another. Um, and I guess most recently looking at whether or not they should be eligible for certain types of government relief and that kind of thing. And any private equity backed business that is not doing very well right now is certain to make headlines normally over the use of leverage. But what role do you think private equity can play in the post-COVID rebuild of the economy, particularly here in the US? Well, look, I mean, I'm in the industry, so I'm going to give a biased answer. But I think that the private equity has a role to play simply because it has capital. It knows how both to start companies. It knows how to help companies grow. It knows how to help companies stabilize. And if you look at, at the environment post-COVID, you will need all three of those skill sets. There is not enough government capital in the world to take care of all the companies in the world. So I think private equity does a very good job of creating those kinds of opportunities. Um, and so to me, private equity has a role to play. Is it the prime mover? No. I mean, it, we're still a small part of the overall economy but I think it's a, it's a critical part of it. So I would expect that private equity will continue to do what it's, what it's done. I will say again, what I said earlier in terms of who is going to have to show leadership, just as 
you know, Google and Apple and some of these big companies are expected to show leadership around, yes, returns, but also good social responsibility. I think private equity is the same way. I think people will look at Hamilton Lane and go, it's great you got returns, but did you do the right thing for employees, for the, the ecosystem around it? I think there will be more scrutiny around that for private equity and for companies just generally. I think we have to understand that that's part of what people expect of us now. Any predictions that you have going into next year? I, I think we'll have a vaccine sooner than people expect. And I don't think it's going to be because the Trump administration pushes it without it being safe. I just think that the, the amount of international cooperation, scientific, um, we just have never seen this before, the amount of money people are putting into it. So I would hope, I think my, my only real fear is that people don't want to take a vaccine because of all the, the talk about it. But I'm hoping we are pleasantly surprised by the vaccine appearing sooner than, than we think. And I think that'd be a good thing. Mario, thank you so much for joining thank me you. today. All right, thanks.